everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Hello, and welcome to the Katie Helper Show. So excited to be here. We have an amazing show for you today. We have a bunch of great guests. We will be talking to Roger Waters. We will be talking to Ahmed Abu Zayed, and we will be talking to Bryce Green. As usual, I'd like to invite everyone to like this stream. Just give it a thumbs up. Also, subscribe if you haven't already subscribed. Subscribe to the Katie Helper Show. If you can, become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, you can become members of the YouTube team where you get cool emojis and badges. So what are we going to be talking about on today's show? We're going to be talking about Roger Waters fighting back against the government of Frankfurt, Germany, which is trying to cancel his concert. He's been smeared as an anti-Semite for the crime of defending Palestinian human rights. We're going to be talking to Ahmed Abu Znayed about what the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights is up to and how U.S. taxpayer dollars are funding the Israeli government. And we're going to be talking to Bryce Green about the Ukraine proxy war, about Nord Stream. He's going to give us an update on the Nord Stream pipeline explosion reporting. We're going to be talking about the fact that Twitter is now labeling not just adversarial governments media as state-sponsored media, and so much more. So without further ado, first, we're going to play this pre-recorded interview I did with Roger, and that was pre-recorded because he's in Europe right now. So obviously it would be very awkward, not emotionally awkward, just an annoying thing to do to have to do an interview in the middle of the night. So he kindly spoke to us during his very active tour. So let's hear what Roger has to say. Thank you so much for returning to the show, Roger. Oh, was that it? Oh, yeah, that was our starting point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me do it again. Ready? So it looks really authentic. All right. Thank you so much for returning to the show, Roger. You couldn't be more welcome. Welcome. Welcome, Thank Katie. you. We are here to talk about your concert in Frankfurt, Germany, which has, as of now, been canceled. But tell yes. us the latest uh, of, of some people whose hearts and minds seem to be changing. Um, well, what I've heard recently, I heard from a German friend uh, who visited us a couple of days ago in Amsterdam, that somebody in the Green Party, who a week ago was part of the coalition in Frankfurt, trying to have my show there cancelled. In fact, they cancelled it. They cancelled it. Cancelled. Blah 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 blah. Has suddenly changed her mind miraculously. It's interesting that people can change their minds about things like this. That it's like it's a sort of movable target, obviously. And I think if the target bites back, like I'm biting back, and I am bloody well biting back, maybe sometimes some of them have second thoughts. Will they actually bother to find out if what they're saying is even faintly anywhere near the truth of anything? And clearly the whole thing was them cancelling my concert because they claim I'm an anti-Semite, which I'm obviously not. And this conversation has been going on for 
donkeys you. I was interested to note the other day that my old, not, well, well, what is he? He's not a colleague exactly. He's uh, somebody I've crossed swords with from time to time over the last 15 years or so. Abe Foxman of the oh, God. Anti-Defamation League, um, who's now come out and criticized the Israeli government himself and said that, that they could, the ADL can no longer support them in their wow. policy things. Um, but all those years ago, when they first decided that I was definitely an anti-Semite, the Anti-Defamation League looked into it and said that on the face of it, given the theatrical circumstances, putting a Star of David on a pig for a few shows in a satirical sketch in the middle of a rock and roll show is not in itself anti-Semitic. Mm. But obviously the anti-Semitism that these people who cancelled my show are talking about is my continual, incessant criticism of the government of the state of Israel it has nothing to do with Jewish people or the Jewish religion or anything. And that's what it is. And that's why I'm so happy to be in the ring with these arseholes arguing the toss. I've been desperate for somebody to do something where I could get into at least being able to have a say about it. And so the kind Frankfurters of Frankfurt have done that, and, and I'm actually really pleased. We served um, a writ, uh, well, well, an injunction. We, d we demanded an injunction from a court three days ago, and they have until this Friday to respond to it. So it remains to be seen whether they're going to try and find a comfortable way to slide out, uh, which they might be able to do because they've just had an election and there's a new mayor. So the new mayor could always backslide and then blame it on the previous mayor. Right. It wasn't to do with me. You know, it was all of them. Well, it's not. It's a, it's a, It's been an ongoing thing for years. But last time I toured Germany was in 2018, and nobody would speak to me at all. There was one guy from um, Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is, a, I think it's a weekly magazine based in Munich, and he did he did print um, a conversation that he had with me, to no great avail, because he was absolutely set in his belief um, that Israel can do no wrong and that if you criticize them, you cannot be heard in Germany because they feel so guilty about 1933 to 1945 that they can't, they can't actually have a conversation about it. Interestingly now, this is forcing them to have a conversation about it. Right. And the fact that the Israeli government is behaving so disgusting disgustingly and appallingly right now is probably helpful to my to my cause and to the cause of free speech in Germany. It may free Germany from criminalizing BDS, for instance, which is something that the Bundestag did three years ago or, well, or two years ago in 1921, or they recommended right. um, the making of uh, boycott, divestment and sanctions illegal. So... I don't know what else to say, really, except that I am gung-ho. It's like 51 days now till the gig in France, and I'm trying to post as often as I can. Here we come. We are on the road to Frankfurt, and nothing will stop us. Unless, of course, it's that they decide that Germany should be a fascist state all over again, and they shouldn't allow human rights or, or free speech or anything to 
people like me, humble troubadours on the road to spreading peace and love all over Central Europe, which is obviously what I'm trying... It is. I'm not joking. I mean, I'm joking, obviously, because I know you like a joke, and I adore you, and I want to keep you happy and cheerful. But how cool is it that we have this platform now? Yeah, and so what if, let's say they cancel it. I mean, if they maintain the cancellation, are you? what are you going to do in, in Frankfurt? Are you going to do, like, a, is there an alternative venue or are you going I to have, do an outside at mo- concert? At the moment, I have no alternative plan. There is no a, alternative. This I is not believe, a drill. Exactly. I believe that we are going to um, win this conversation with, with the others, because they have every opportunity to say whatever they want and do what. I mean, in the document that they produced, they brought up the 3,000 Jewish men who were rounded up and kept in the Festhalle, which is the venue for this thing, on Kristallnacht in 1938, which we don't remember, but we know all about it because we read books and we study history and we know what happened. But trying to lay the um, the appalling story of those 3,000 men who were all murdered, obviously, taken away and killed by the Nazis in 1930. But to try and lay that at my door or to suggest that I shouldn't be allowed to um, perform my songs in the Festhalle in Frankfurt because of what um, Goebbels and Adolf Hitler and the rest of them did in 1930 is so clearly absurd and beyond any connection at all. By the way, before I go in further, Katie Helper, thank you so much for starting the petition, which I think oh, we're somewhere in the low 30s now, but, I th- and, but not many of my Arab friends have joined in yet. So we could get, who knows where yeah, I could. We definitely can get more. Well, we should push that. Oh, so great. Thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and some really big, I mean, people um, have signed and uh, Tom Morello, Ken Loach, Susan Sarandon, Cornell West, Brian Eno, Peter Gabriel. I'm just looking at the at the list right now. Medea Benjamin, um, Beth Miller from Jewish Voice for Peace, um, UK, Palestine uh, artists. Angela Davis. No, no we have to ask, you got to ask Angela. We haven't gotten her. Oh, please. You I have don't have to. her contact info, so you're gonna. You may have to ask her. Um, told Noam Chomsky has signed. And no, well, Noam what? Chomsky did sign. Yeah, yeah. we got him. Yeah, um, but I mean, it's interesting what you just said about how they're putting the this uh, you know crystal knock at your feet as if you had something to do with that, or as if you condone anti-Semitism. And I think it's so ironic. I was I didn't realize this until I was doing a, a live stream on my show. And someone wrote in the comments that your dad died fighting Nazis. That is true, yeah. He died at Anzio. Well, near Anzio. And the irony Fr- of Ger- of Germans telling you that you're an anti-Semite when your father literally gave his life in the fight against Nazism. Yeah, it is ironic. And they make, you know, the people paying for their crimes are Palestinians. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, the fact of the matter is that that the Israeli government, the people who, the apartheid state who is perpetrating all the crimes on the Palestinian people, have nothing to stand on. They have no platform. 
And this is what the Germans find so uncomfortable about it, I think, that it is so reminiscent of what happened in those years that I mentioned between 33 and 45, that it must, it, it must, I mean, I can't imagine what it, what it must be. And, but what it must be like to actually be supporting a regime that is behaving in a very similar way to that hugely racist endeavor that was Nazi Germany must be, I can understand, I think, why they find it difficult to keep their eye on the ball and focus on the question. The question is very simple. It's a very simple question. I said it again and again. I said it again to the people of Germany. Do you believe in Paris 1948 and the, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as one of the fundamental principles of the founding of the United Nations? We, the peoples of the United do you believe in it or not? Because if you do, this is complete bullshit. You have to declare Israel a pariah state until such time as it, as it observes basic principles of human rights. So, for instance... Talking of all the land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, there I said it. Mark Lamont Hill has been out of a job ever since he said it, right. but since blah, blah, blah. Um, that is an absolutely fundamental requirement of anyone ever speaking to you again. And certainly we're not going to play football with you. And I get used to the idea you are a pariah state you have to obs i know there are a lot of states that don't observe human rights and pretend to i live in one of them the united states of america is a perfect example of such a state but that's why it's so great that you you've started that petition and people are beginning to take notice and that i get my day in court and i'll be very interested to see on friday what the frankfurters have to say about it yeah. I'm really, I'm really interested. I've no idea which way they're going to jump, but I think if they jump into court, they're going to have a very sticky time. We're going to have to do a follow-up interview. I just realized this is going to be our part one. Sorry to take up more of your time. Oh, I look forward to We're it. We're going to have to react to the Friday news. Um, how does this compare to what happened with South Africa? I mean, you were obviously were making music and performing then, and there was a very organized. Uh, BDS campaign about South Africa. Um, what did you experience then not performing in South Africa versus not performing in Israel today? Um, that's interesting. Sun City was not throwing huge amounts of money at me trying to get, which, which, which the Israelis were for a Quite a few years from when I stopped, when I said, I'm not going to play that, I am not crossing this picket line, which was in 2006. So that's 17 or 18 years ago now. So that was, that was very different. But it was a very different situation because it was kind of cool to be anti-apartheid. Everybody was. So but, um, it was very easy to boycott South Africa in a way that it's not easy to do with Israel. It was very popular. Popular. Throughout society, throughout all sections of, because it had nothing to do with religion, okay? It had nothing to do with color, actually, even though the thing was. But here we were saying, well, we, we're not a racist society. So we, and, and particularly in the music industry, it was very, no, no. We, there were very few standouts against that. Are there people who have said to you, I support you, but I don't want to publicly come out because I don't want to take a hit on my career or my reputation? Yeah, lots and lots. 
And I'm not naming their names. No, no, no. That's fine. Yeah. yeah. I almost feel bad asking you about this because it's ridiculous and you shouldn't have to. But what I know that you are someone who unreservedly uh, rejects and fights against racism. So, and you see anti Semitism as an example of that. You've said that to me in the past. So, what do you say to people who say, oh, you, you know, you, you don't care about anti Semitism? Of course I do. I care deeply about all forms of racism, which includes anti-Semitism, and it's a real problem. Obviously, any any racist attack upon any peoples, as I as I always say in my little spiel, is is that my platform is equal human rights for all our brothers and sisters all over the world, irrespective of their ethnicity, religion, or nationality. So I include nationality in it as well. You cannot, which would include my support for refugees' rights, for instance. So, yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely, you know, you have to, there's one key ingredient into finding out whether the simplicity that I speak about exists or not. You have to be able to put yourself in your brothers' and sisters' shoes. You have to be able to empathize and we're not taught empathy, many, many. I was. My mum my and dad taught me empathy. It was sort of the most important gift, certainly, that my mother gave me. You know, my father was dead, so, but by his example, he gave me an, an extraordinary kind of heroic. He was a conscientious objector at the beginning of the war, my, my father, on, on the grounds that he was a um, Bible basher. He loved Jesus. He loved all that stuff about, I don't know. Um, Turn the other turning, cheek. Yeah. Well, and also about sharing material right. stuff, you know, which was very, and the, the widow's might, and the this and that and the other, and all those parables and stuff like that. But then when he saw what was going on in the Second World War, he became um, politically involved and eventually joined the Communist Party. And then eventually he realized that, his his um, capacity to empathize with the victims of the Nazis meant that he could no longer not go and put his body on the line and fight for, for human rights, which is what he was doing on February the 18th, 1944, in Aprilia, just northeast of the Anzio Bridgehead, when he was killed. That's what he was doing. He was fighting for their human and ours and ours and everybody else's because he could see that if you don't stand up to these bastards, no one is safe. We, the people of the world, have to stand up to the Netanyahu's and Ben Gavir's and all those raging fascist swine who run Israel now. We have to stand up for them because we're not just standing up for ourselves or just for the Palestinians. We're standing up for the idea that human beings can organize themselves so that we all stand up for one another. And we won't allow anybody to be treated like that. We do not cherry pick human rights. We must all have them equally. You've been so generous with your time and I know you're you're so busy. So any final words that you have, and especially because we're going to do a part two, so can't use up all your time now. Any final yeah. words you have for the people of Germany? I'm, I'm on my way, particularly the people of Frankfurt. We're coming with our message of love and brotherhood. 
okay, in our support of human rights. And we're hoping to persuade all you lovely German people, not just to come to the show, because the show's 90% sold out anyway, and it will be sold out by the time we get there. So I don't need to sell tickets, but I, what I want to do is share this message with you. Do not be bamboozled by your rotten government telling you that you are not allowed to support human rights because of your guilt about the fascists in the uh, 1930s and 40s. No, you've got to be free. You have to free yourself of all that. I know I sound a bit patrician explaining this to you, but if you weren't, if you were doing it for yourselves, I wouldn't have to. Do you see what I'm right. saying? And you did have... I went to Frankfurt. And, you, and one encouraging thing is that they tried to... to um, block you, cancel you from Munich in Munich, and they failed. They turned tail in Munich. They withdrew from the fray. But they'd been trying to do it since 2018 in Munich. And when they did that to me in 2018, they did it a week after Camilla, my wife, and I had visited a park in Munich to visit the graves of Sophie Skoll and uh, Hans Skoll, her brother, and Christopher Probst, who, who were sentenced to death and executed in Munich in 1943, guillotined, had their heads cut off, because they started a thing called the White Rose Movement, which, right. and were distributing leaflets in the university in Munich to explain what their government then was doing to the Jews and how they were trying to stop it. Well, I sat at Sophie Skull's grave because I'd read a lot about her and her story. And yet these assholes are trying to... And this is, this is the sort of around, you know, one of the anniversaries of the book burnings in Berlin and, and, uh, and also in Munich. There was a big book burning in Munich. But that, that's 1933, yeah. The first book burnings were in 1933. Anyway... Yeah, so I look forward to it. And I know it will be it will be a really good evening because there's a great atmosphere in my shows. There really is, and people kind of get into it. And if it's in Germany, it will be so cool in the town where they tried to prevent free speech. Thank you so much, Roger. Not at all. And everyone watching, make sure you sign the petition. Yeah, sign the petition, please. And we've gotten some really great people. So thanks again, Roger. All right. Ciao. And that was the interview with Roger. And we do hope you enjoyed that. Also, if you're Patreon supporters, I will be releasing the rest of that interview. There's some fun behind the scenes parts. He does name some names about a conversation he had with someone about Israel, a musician who was good on South Africa. Uh, not as good on Israel. That'll be in the Patreon. And he also talks about uh, the violence um, violence in Israel, how that compares to the violence in the United States. So definitely check that out. That'll be ready by the end of the week at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, if you haven't already, please do sign this petition. I'm just going to do a quick screen share. Here's that petition that we're talking about. And you can join really cool people if you sign this petition. Not that you need to be joining anyone else because you're all independent thinkers, but here's the petition. And you'll be joining people like 
Brian Eno, Peter Gabriel, Anwar Hadid, Tom Morello, Chomsky, Cornel West, Susan Sarandon, Ken Loach, Nick Mason, Eric Clapton, Gabor Mate, Moral Technique, Low Key, Andrew Feinstein, Julian Schnabel. Uh, you can see so many great names here. And do it. Make sure you do it. Nora Erekat, uh, Susan Abelhawa, friends of show. And uh, we're almost at 30, we're over 31,000. So let's get to 35,000. And uh, not only should you sign it, but you should share it on social media because we really want to make sure that the uh, German government, the government of Frankfurt knows that this is unacceptable to cancel someone's uh, concert over this. And again, they'll be responding by Friday. They should be responding by Friday to the injunction that uh, is calling for the reversal of the cancellation. Again, if you're just tuning in, welcome. Please do become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, please join us right after this stream at around 8.30. We'll be doing a call-in. Bryce Green will be there, our guest, uh, and we'll be taking your calls there. The link to that is in the YouTube description. Also, uh, make sure you stick around because we have two more interviews. We're going to be talking to Ahmed Abuznayed. And after that, Bryce Green will be talking about the latest in the Nord Stream gas line pipeline. So I'm going to bring on Ahmed. And he is, Ahmed Abuznayed is a Florida-based attorney, director of the coming documentary film Shukran 10, Days in Palestine, and executive director of the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. So Ahmed, welcome to the show, making your Katie Halper show debut. How are you? I'm excited. I'm excited. Thank you for having me, Katie. Of course. So please tell us what you are working at, at the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. Working on, yeah. excuse me. Yeah. So uh, once again, thanks for having me. We're really excited to talk about this campaign. Uh, of course, you know, everyone across the country right now is worried about their taxes because next week is tax day. Um, but, you know, in relation to Palestine, we're also one month away from the 75th commemoration of a Nakba. So for folks who are knowledgeable about the Palestinian cause, that is the the, the tragedy, uh, the catastrophe that befell the Palestinian people when we were ethnically cleansed by the Israelis in order for them to create a Jewish majority and a Jewish state. And so why is that important? So we're all right now thinking about our tax dollars and where our tax dollars are going, how much we're getting back, but also what is our government using our tax dollars for? So this week, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights is launching a new campaign to end U.S. military funding to the state of Israel, and it's titled, Palestine Will Be Free, Stop Arming Israel, Fund Our, fund our Communities. And what does that look like? Well, we have this interactive tool that we just released on our website, and I think you all have that queued up. Yep. And what that does, is that allows for any user in this country to interact with a map and figure out based on their city, their county, or their state, how much of their federal tax dollars are going to arm Israeli apartheid as opposed to funding our communities. Okay, so let's take a look. So here I am, I'm on the website, and what I can do is I can type in my city or state to begin, or I can just highlight it, right? But here you have it on the U.S., you have the national level, right? That's right. So in the U.S., $3 billion, $800 million to Israel's weapons could instead fund 451,735 households with public housing for a year. Jesus. 1,322,199 children receiving free or low-cost health care. 41,490 elementary school teachers. 10,818,505 households with solar electricity produced for a year. 
100,563 students with their loan debt canceled and over 3 billion N95 respirator masks. Okay, let's see what happens in New York. Okay, so these are the numbers in New York. Oh, this is really cool. That's right. That's how much federal tax dollars are going from New York directly to arming the state of Israel. That's crazy. Yeah, and as you can see right down below, what community members can see if we weren't arming apartheid. And for you know many community members, different concerns are prioritized. But as you can see, those are some of the top things that community members across the U.S. have been talking about. You know, as we see inflation rise, you know, as we see people struggling to find work that would allow for a cost of living basis, as we see issues around our school districts, right? You know, these are a numerous amount of priorities that community members are asking to be funded, but our federal government instead prioritizes arming Israel. And, you know, part of the thing for us, Katie, is also having folks understand, you know, not only what they can see if we reduce that funding of Israeli apartheid, but what what can we also envision if we stop funding things like Cop City? For us, when we think about militarization of police, we thought about it as a concern in Ferguson and Baltimore and Minnesota, and we're continuing to see that now with Cop City. But also as it relates to Israel and Palestine, the same Israeli forces that have been training police forces in counterterrorism, quote unquote, are coming to Atlanta in May to continue training of the Atlanta Police Department. So we're seeing this in real time. We've seen it over the last few years, and we have to tell our legislators that enough is enough. And so the last thing about that tool that I wanted to make sure folks noticed is not only can you figure out how much in federal tax dollars your city, your county, or your state are contributing to apartheid, but there's also the take action tool, you know, where you can reach out to members of your Congress, your congressional representatives, and let them know enough is enough. Let me just do that so that you can see how easy it is. U.S. military funding to Israel map. And then here you go. We have take action and you can share now on social media. So I guess that's a download of a PDF that you can share. That's right. You can contact your representative. That takes you to a place where you can find your representative. That's really cool. And you can donate. And of course, use the hashtag stop arming Israel. That's right. Yeah. And what is your personal relationship to this issue? I'm a Palestinian born in the West Bank. My family lives in the West Bank. About 95% of my family is still there. So when you talk about, you know, arming apartheid, you know, my family every day is a struggle through checkpoints, through militarized communities, through apartheid. You know, most of my family has never seen the beach in Haifa or Yaffa. Most of my family has never traveled through Tel Aviv airport. And of course, most of my family right now lives under military law in the West Bank. And so they don't have civil rights or human rights the way most of us think of those things in the West, right? If my family members want to travel down certain roads, down certain sidewalks, they get rebuffed and stopped by Israeli military because, you know, in their communities, there are Jewish-only roads. And that can be quite problematic when most of the population is non-Jewish. I have a West Bank ID, what's known as a Hawiyah. So that means for me, I can't fly through Tel Aviv airport to go home. That means for me that I need a visiting permit to go to Jerusalem when I travel back home. By the way, I was born in Jerusalem. So again, you know, we continue to see the layers to the apartheid where someone born in Jerusalem is not allowed to enter the city without a permit because I have Palestinian ID. So this is very personal. 
you know, not only is it personal to me on that end, but these are my tax dollars, right? This is the government that claims to represent me, not only domestically, but in crafting its foreign policy. And so my tax dollars shouldn't be going to support an apartheid regime anywhere, but it's especially personal and painful when that apartheid regime is holding your people captive. Have you been in touch with your family recently during the latest round of pogroms? What have they been saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, thankfully, my family lives in the villages of Dura, a bit on the outskirts of Al-Khalil, a.k.a. Hebron. And so they haven't seen much. But, you know, every community knows like that if this isn't our time, our time could be coming. And, and that's what it was like in 1948, in 1967. And that's what it continues to be today. You know, the folks in Hawara didn't know that they were next. You know, we heard so much about Sheikh Jarrah over the last couple of years and Elid and some of these other areas. But then it became Hawara. We've seen incursions into Ramallah nightly, into Janin and Nablus. And so we know that until we get liberation, until we end the occupation, until we stop funding and arming apartheid, no Palestinian community there is safe. And of course, there's now the attacks on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which people are scrambling to come up with excuses for, like because kids were playing soccer. I didn't know that that was a crime. Yeah, I, I think what we see in a lot of the Israeli talking points is that when you dehumanize an entire population, you can excuse almost any atrocity. And so when we see entire buildings bombed and hundreds of people buried in the bombings of Gaza, we're told that, you know, Hamas was using the building. When we see people beaten in the mosque, we hear it's because kids were playing soccer outside. When someone is shot dead at a checkpoint, we hear it's because they had a traffic accident and were attempting to run into a soldier. And so no matter what, the Israelis will find a way to blame the Palestinians. The good thing is that most of the people across the world don't buy into it. And we've seen not only an increase in support at the congressional level in the U.S., but we continue to see mass support in the streets. And, and what we're looking for as movements is we're looking to finally see that mass support in the streets lead to policy wins and policy shifts. And that's what we're working on at the U.S. campaign. Tell us about this documentary that you're working on. I'm really excited about that, Katie. So I, at my time at the Dream Defenders, we really viewed ourselves as a part of a history, a trajectory of the Black radical tradition, of Black power movement. Can you just explain to people what Dream Defenders is? Yeah, the Dream Defenders was an organization that I co-founded along with comrades in Florida, and it was in response to the murder of Trayvon Martin. At the time, I was a uh, recent law school grad, and myself and my friends, my colleagues, my comrades knew something needed to be done, not only for Trayvon, but for all of the young people in Florida. You know, what we've seen is a proliferation of stand-your-ground laws, and even, you know, what we've just seen recently from DeSantis, you know, signing into law that you don't even need a license now in the state of Florida, and you can carry. So it, it, it's a very dangerous precedent to set. So we took action for Trayvon and for the future of the state of Florida. But in those conversations around state-sanctioned violence and vigilante violence, we started talking about Palestine. And so over the years, we took some delegations to Palestine that were truly historic. We took Mark Lamont Hill. We took Aja Monet. We took Vic Mensa, Philip Agnew and so many members of the Dream Defenders that we wanted to capture footage and make a film out of it. And the real reason that we need to tell this story, the reason this film needs to be made is because too many people think that this huge, booming solidarity that we're seeing between 
the black community and Palestinian community, they think it's new. But what we want to do is not only tell the story of the folks that went in 2015 and 2016 and 2017, but we'd love to tell the story for folks to know that this started back in the 60s with Malcolm, uh, with Martin, with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, with the Black Panther Party, with Angela Davis, with Alice Walker, and so many others, you know, that, that we continue to, to look to as role models for our movement. So happy to share that, that history with people, happy to share this film with people, and we hope to finish that film by the end of this year. What else do you want people to know about the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights? We want people to know that this is a political home for all that believe that all of us as human beings should be free and equal, regardless of what border or boundary we live under. So the Palestinian people are a part of this vision of collective liberation that we have for our world. If you're interested in that, join us at the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights. You can visit USCPR.org. You can follow us on social media at USCPR. And the last thing I'll flag for you is our national conference is happening in Houston, Texas, October 27th to the 29th. We're extremely excited because that community is really doing organizing work. And we're excited to go throw down in Texas and build until Palestine is free. Well, thank you so much, Ahmed, for coming on. And we will link to your organization. We'll also link to your map. And thank you for fighting the good fight. And that conference sounds great. Awesome. We hope to see you there. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. That was great. Okay, everyone. Uh, thank you, Tony D, for that super chat. And thank you for saying thank you so much for having this man on. I agree. Great guest, if I do say so myself. I can say that because I'm not bragging about myself. I'm bragging about my guests, which I'm fully, fully comfortable doing. Remember to see this full thing. The whole chat that we just showed with Roger Waters will stay up here. The whole chat with Ahmed will be up here. And then the Bryce chat, if you're watching live, you're in luck. You're going to get to watch the whole thing. If you're watching this later, part of the Bryce will be at Patreon only. So to access that, go to patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. And also to see some really juicy parts of that Roger Waters interview that we didn't show, you can access that at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. So without any further ado, I'm going to bring to the stage Bryce Green. He's a great journalist and he writes for fair, fairness, and accuracy in reporting. Welcome, Bryce. Thank you so much for having me on again, Katie. Of course. Thanks for coming back. People were very, very excited by your presence and they wanted you back. So I had to oblige them. I, I must, I'm accountable to my audience. We're going to get into a lot of different things, a lot of foreign policy stuff, especially, but want to start off asking you about a recent article that you wrote. We talked about this a bit last week, as you write in your recent piece at FAIR, Trump's idling plane got more TV coverage than Biden cutting health care for 15 million. We discussed this last week. It was disgusting. It's incorrigible. The media malpractice is unexcusable. But can you just tell us about some of the numbers in terms of minutes of what was shown? So, I mean, uh, yeah, like I like you said, you already went over this. So, you know, the details. Millions of people are getting kicked off of health care, which, you know, major story in America. It affects millions of people. And on the other hand, you have a war criminal con man being indicted for minor charges that may not even stick. You can decide which one is more important, but the media, they think that the Trump story is way more important. This was an analysis from Media Matters, and they cited CNN as having 48 minutes of B-roll of Trump's motorcade, the plane just sitting there, kind of like they did the empty podium stuff in 2016. And MSNBC, they aired 66 minutes of similar footage, you know, just a plane idling, 
the motorcade going up, the plane flying away, just on an endless loop. And it's because that's what their viewers want to see. Now, compare that to the coverage of the millions of people losing their health care. Well, it wasn't mentioned at all on the Sunday morning talk shows. The ones that set the agenda for what happens in Washington, it was completely omitted. But Adam Johnson, the great writer, former fair columnist. Friend of the show. Yeah, great guy. He did his own survey and he found a few scattered mentions of this. It was MSNBC was the most robust coverage with a two-minute segment. And that's probably rounding up. ABC News aired a minute and a half segment. CBS Evening News aired uh, 19 seconds. So this is this is the serious journalism that's going on in America. They're telling you that we should be concerned about, you know, minor charges. It's the president, and it's the first time a president has been, you know, arraigned and indicted and all this stuff. It's historic, but, you know, the first time for everything. What about the first time that some people are, you know, going to go to a hospital and be thrown into medical debt? I think that's a far more important story, and it says a lot about our media ecosystem that that wasn't even deemed worthy of not even five minutes of total coverage, not even five minutes. But, you know, an idling plane, that's a huge story. People love to watch the Trump news. As you referred to, this is reminiscent of during the 2016 campaign when you would have Trump's empty podium. Networks would cut away from a Bernie Sanders speech to show Trump's empty podium. I mean, if that doesn't say everything, I don't know what what does. Shifting gears a little bit to foreign policy, Let's talk a little bit about the latest in Nord Stream reporting, because this is something we talked about last time you were on, and there are constant updates. And as people know, Seymour Hirsch, of course, did a piece on this that he published at Substack. Then the New York Times ran its own cover story, which was kind of laughable, as you said yourself, pretty flimsy. What's the latest? Can you summarize the kind of trajectory of stories starting from Hirsch's to today? Yeah, Hirsch's story came after several months of media silence on the Nord Stream pipeline explosion. As soon as the explosion happened, uh, many knowledgeable commentators who weren't scared of criticizing the United States, well, they were quick to point out that the United States has the largest motive in actually carrying out these attacks. And they've been saying loudly for a long time that they were against this pipeline. And they had said almost exactly what they were going to do as soon as the war started. Newland and Biden, they both said the statements. We're going to make sure Nord Stream 2 does not go forward. And so there were a lot of, you know, lots of silence. Then Hirsch's story came. And then a month later, after completely ignoring Seymour Hirsch's story, you see two separate publications on the same day come out with a similar story, citing German investigators and U.S. intelligence that there was a yacht in Ukraine that was found by investigators that may have had something to do with this that was rented by a Ukrainian oligarch, and it is unclear whether or not these people have any connection to the Ukrainian government. But, you know, it's a Ukrainian oligarch, so you can make your own assumptions. Well, this piece was, you know, picked up by a lot of people. The New York Times published it. It was darted around the Washington Post and the rest of the media ecosystem. But there were a number of problems with this piece that jumped out right away, mainly that it flied in the face of what investigators had initially said about the attack was that it was sophisticated enough that it will require a state actor. So, uh, you know, a ragtag group of divers on a small yacht might not be the most likely culprit in a situation like that. Uh, But, you know, journalists, they're 
mostly compliant, so they went along with it. They didn't ask too many questions. But at the same time, other stories were coming up, too. Uh, you know, Radio Free Europe came out with some story about a, a Danish tanker that was hovering around right at the same time. And then there was further reporting about some of these investigators. But now the most recent line for the New York Times is that, well, you know, maybe this yacht was actually a decoy. Maybe that this isn't the whole story. You know, this yacht is pretty small and uh, there are a lot of details that don't add up. Even just a simple matter of anchoring the yacht in however deep that water was. Yeah, look, I mean, look at that boat. You think that that boat could drop hundreds and hundreds of feet of chain anchor into the ground? Observers have pointed out that might take up the entire space of the boat just to have that chain there, let alone the alleged explosive residue that was found on the boat long after. If these are serious saboteurs, you think they'd be able to cover their tracks in a way that they couldn't be found out months later. But that's the way the story went. Seymour Hirsch responded to this by saying that this was, in fact, a CIA disinformation operation. You know, whenever you have an operation, whenever you have a clandestine covert operation, you need to have a cover story so the general public is able to go along with it. I mean, that's been the case for every covert operation in history. And this seems to be a cover story. And Seymour Hirsch and his sources, they confirm this. But one of the more interesting things that came out of uh, Hirsch's story, this was called the ghost ship, referring to the Andromeda, was that he talked with one of the original German reporters in Die Zeit. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. His name was Holger Stark. And Hirsch considers Stark to be a serious, a good journalist. And he had a conversation with them. Stark stood by his story, claiming that they were working on the story long before the New York Times dropped it. Of course, that doesn't discount the possibility of this being a cover story. I mean, cover stories can get convoluted, as anyone who studies this sort of thing knows. But one thing that Stark did confirm, which is very interesting, was that after the explosion, if you remember the coverage, several explosions happened, but one of the mines that was laid, one of the explosives that was laid, did not go off. And Stark told Seymour Hirsch that, well, Danish, Swedish, and German investigators, well, they wanted to recover the mine to figure out, you know, what they could from that sort of thing. That's key evidence in a thing like this. Finding out the origin of the bomb, having a bomb right there, I mean, that's, that's pretty important. So they rushed to go and pick up this unexploded mine, but they were too late. The Americans got there first. And this is according to, you know, again, a mainstream journalist. And when asked why Stark thought the Americans got there first, he told Hirsch, he said, well, you know, Americans, they always like to be first. And then Hirsch notes that, well, there is a another more obvious explanation for why the Americans were so quick to rush and uh, retrieve a, an unexploded mine. So you have confirmation that the Americans were some of the first people on the scene. And what this also confirms, incidentally, is that this fact was not reported to the American press beforehand. It wasn't reported anywhere beforehand. So this fact that Americans were first to the scene was suppressed until now. I mean, it might have been reported somewhere else, but I didn't hear about it. And I've been studying this fairly closely. So this fact adds a, a lot to the circumstantial case for U.S. complicity in the Nord Stream pipeline attacks, namely that 
like I said earlier, the U.S. had long been opposed to this pipeline. They hated it. They don't want Germany to get cheap natural gas from Russia. They want to cut off Russia from its European counterparts. They want to control the flow of gas into Europe. They don't want Germany to get as industrially powerful as they could be while using this cheap Russian gas. So all those reasons give you extreme and intense geopolitical incentives for the U.S. to blow up this pipeline. But then you have the actual circumstances surrounding it. You had, according to journalist Pepe Escobar, who's a a well-connected independent journalist, formerly of the Asia Times, Escobar, for his part, and using his sources, said that he confirmed the gist of Seymour Hersh's story, which is interesting in its own right. But previously, he had reported that German and Russian officials were in conversation, in secret talks, on the day the pipeline exploded to maybe turn on the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which the Russians had shut down previously as a result of a lot of the tensions going on during the war. But, you know, Germany, they were facing uh, their, the papers were using extreme language like deindustrialization because the high cost of gas when you can't get it from Russia means that industry can't really function as well. It's a lot less efficient. So German industry was kind of scared. People were worried. Are German manufacturers going to start leaving the country in the next year or so? So they were desperate and they were talking to the Russians. And while they were talking to the Russians, you have this explosion. And then Escobar also reported that while the CIA did warn Germany that someone might be coming to blow up the pipeline, uh, the Germans were, quote, furious because they were generally kept out of the loop. The warnings were vague and unspecific and unclear. And uh, if anything, If we're looking at this from the standpoint of a covert operation, that warning laid the groundwork for any cover story that might have come later. And so there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that points in the direction of the United States. There's no smoking gun, of course, uh, unless you believe Seymour Hersh is an unimpeachable journalist. And no one's unimpeachable. I mean, people get things wrong. Spooks lie, misrepresent, or, you know, just get things wrong on accident. But the circumstantial evidence to any serious geopolitical observer, to anyone who doesn't have the blinders that come with being a member of the American press, for any anyone like that, it's pretty clear that the United States is doing this or that the United States was likely behind it. I mean, it obviously should be considered. I mean, people won't even consider it. It's mind-boggling. And I know we talked about this before. I've talked about this on my show before, and I talked about it with John Pilger. But it is really stunning how somehow people are tricked into believing that it would be at all plausible for Russia to have done this. Yeah. After Russia had spent billions and billions of dollars to finish this pipeline, they had navigated U.S. sanctions for years to finish it. They were negotiating with Angela Merkel's Germany. In fact, weeks before the pipeline exploded, Putin... Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. To hear the rest of that discussion, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.